Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to invite Justin Bell up to represent his small group, and uh, he's our storyteller for the day. He's going to be interviewed uh, by yours truly to tell us the story of his small group. So Justin, first uh, introduce yourself so we all know who we're hearing from. Hi, I'm Justin Bell. I've been coming to Evergreen for almost five years now. And... You have a family, and... (laughs) Uh, My wife, Nicole, and boys, Eli and Sawyer, are sitting right here on the side. And, uh, yeah. And what do you do? Um, I do a lot of things. Um, (laughs) Most of the week, I spend my time working at Amazon. I'm a product manager there. I also work with uh, the Mercer Island Football Club. I'm on the board there and do a little coaching. And what other hobbies do you have? Um, well, when I, uh, when I have extra time, I try to stay active and outdoors. I love to run um, and read and um, uh, mostly just spend time with those guys over there. Okay. Thanks for letting us know you a little bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about your small group. Introduce it to us, what it's like, how it got started, that sort of thing. Yeah, we've been uh, together in various forms for several years now. Uh, Nicole and I used to attend a small group led by the Yeas, Mike and Jenny Ye, at their house. And when they moved overseas, we decided to keep it going. And so uh, it comprised mostly uh, families with kids, um, although we are multi-generational. Uh, Donna Palmberg's our newest member, starting, she's not here yet, starting next week uh, with us. And so um, we meet uh, every other week on Friday evenings, and uh, we spend some time having dinner, potluck, uh, just enjoying each other's company, and um, and then we'll spend some time in the Word or whatever we're studying at the time. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment in the small group when you and Nicole realized this was the group for you and you guys were going to commit to it? I think pretty early on in the time with the A's, we, um, we really just, uh, it was a good way to connect with the church beyond uh, these larger group settings. Uh, we really felt a connection and it felt like a sense of community, and that's why we felt convicted to keep it going once the, once the A's left. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment in the uh, course of the small group when there was some acute need or incident in the group, and the group really sort of showed its value, and then you knew that small groups are important and it's worthy of committing to? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we do every week is we take prayer requests, and so sometimes uh, the, the prayer requests are just to help us through the week, but there are times when someone in the group really needs something um, much stronger than that, and that's something that really uh, um, we value, and, and that helps. Um, the other thing I would say is is uh, one of the things we, we've we've been studying different books for a while, different different um, uh, in the Word in the in the Bible, or whether it's a, a separate book. Um, recently, we've been studying um, Francis Chan's book called Letters to the Church, and I think this was a I would almost call it a watershed moment for a group just recently, even after years of meeting. And, and part of it was um, what the book is about is, is um, what church was meant to be in biblical terms and how we've uh, departed from that as a, as a culture o- over time. And we really, uh, I think it was really eye-opening for us in how um, uh, God designed church and God has asked us and Jesus has asked us to participate in church. Uh, and one of the things we actually talked about um, earlier this year was how church should not be dependent on a single person or a single event and how we are the church 
and then you uh, decided to move on. And we felt like this discussion was really preparing us for our next chapter as a church. Uh, and that was where I think we really felt like, wow, this is so important and we really belong together discussing these sorts of issues. That was a really compelling thought you just shared with us. But um, my next question was, and you can kind of um, expand on that even a little bit more if you like, is let's say we are not sold on small groups mm -hmm. and you have an elevator ride with us. You got to pitch why we should consider small groups, why it's worth uh, having that fixture in our life as part of our rhythm. Yeah. Uh, tell us why. I, I mean, to expand on what I just said, small group for, for us and for our group is church. That is the foundation. Um, coming here, meeting as a larger group is super important, and it's uh, a great way to uh, worship the Lord. But where we really f kind of get to know each other, learn how to love each other better, which is what Christ has called us to do, um, that really happens in the small group community. Mm, that's awesome. Anything else you want to share with us about your group that I didn't ask you about? Um, just that we have a really good time together, too, and it's a lot of fun, and we've really gotten to know each other at a level we, um, we wouldn't have uh, organically through coming here on the weekends. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening to our story about small groups. Uh, one point I would just add is sociologists would tell us that we have a need for large groups, medium groups, and small groups for us to feel whole, feel connected. And so I encourage you, if you have not thought about a small group yet, uh, it's a really ne necessary thing, and I think there's a great story that illustrates that. Thanks so much, Justin. So this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from chapter 20 in the New English Translation. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. Whoever goes astray by them is not wise. A king sitting on the throne to judge separates out all evil with his eyes. The ear that hears and the eye that sees, the Lord has made them both. Plans are established by counsel, so make war with guidance. The sluggard will not plow during the planting season, so at harvest time he looks for the crop but has nothing. Do not love sleep, lest you become impoverished. Open your eyes so that you might be satisfied with food. An inheritance gained easily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Bread gained by deceit tastes sweet to a person, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Do not say, I will pay back evil. Wait for the Lord so that he may vindicate you. It is a snare for a person to rashly cry holy and only afterward to consider what he has vowed. The glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is gray hair or no hair. <laughs> the word of the Lord. <laughs> that was great. Uh, that was a great joke. I love it. <laughs> uh, kids, you are invited to Sunday school, and teachers, we thank you so much for what you do every week. <laughs> uh, church, thanks for um, being here today. We are continuing in our series in the book of Proverbs 
called Life Pro Tip. And today we find ourselves in Proverbs 20, and I'm excited for this sermon topic. It's this encouragement and imperative to think. And I don't know why this has to be the title or a point I need to make in church. There, it used to be that to be a believer, a church-going person, meant that you were often the most educated people in society. And uh, the smartest, most well-read and thoughtful person uh, was the priest or the pastor uh, in the village. And, uh, you know, when much of your neighborhood might be uh, illiterate, uh, it was Bible-reading people, and especially the ones who were teaching from the Bible, they were thought to be the most thoughtful, most uh, caught up to date on science and uh, how reality works. But at some point, things started flipping, and it came to be assumed that if you are a Christian or somebody who believes in God, then you sort of tend to just believe that you don't have evidence to support your faith, that you sort of create a kind of dichotomy, a false dichotomy between thinking and believing, uh, that you're not critical in the way you process things, that uh, you're not rational and you're not um, considering uh, all the uh, aspects of life. Why is that? Where did this false dichotomy come from? Why is it that the reputation today is that if you are a scientist, you're probably not a believer, that you don't have faith, that if your job entails, like, can Justin, who's a product, product manager at Amazon, also be a Christian? You know, I noted even when he was talking up here, uh, he said something about the Lord. And I thought, can a thinking person say the Lord? Can somebody who manages products well say the Lord? You know, I know maybe not everybody thinks about this, but I think about it because I'm sort of confronted by this because I'm a professional Christian. Do we deserve that reputation? Do Christians deserve that reputation? Uh, an example of this is Christians love to pray. And there's even been uh, sort of the culture on social media, especially responding to this false dichotomy. They say, well, if you sort of share on Facebook some struggle you're having in life or some tragedy or catastrophe in the world, then Christians will send you their thoughts and prayers. They don't actually do anything. Christians don't do stuff. They just pray, just pray. They don't offer real value. They, they sort of work on the softer sides of life. Why is that? So that's what I want to sort of uh, take a critical look at today. Dichotomies assume that things are either or, black or white, that it's thinking or believing, that these two things cannot coexist. That somehow one pushes out the other. It's, they displace the other. False dichotomies, it turns out, um, this was an interesting uh, deep dive for me, is in general, they say that uh, false dichotomies don't exist. There's no such thing as a false dichotomy. 
because they say there's actually very few dichotomies in the world. Dichotomies are false by definition. That most things in life are not dichotomous. That the way reality works is most things are both and. Until we really push things out to the extremes or where God is sort of pure good and then we have pure evil, light and darkness. Until we get to these outer extremes, uh, we don't have dichotomies and we don't have false dichotomies because dichotomies are very, very rare. What you find in life is that we most, 99.9% of reality is right here in the middle where things are sort of gray, shades of gray. And even the most diehard atheist is an atheist by faith, not just by thinking or research alone. And what you find is that scientists, when you start interviewing scientists, they all acknowledge as a category that science itself is built on faith. That somehow you have to believe that there's something else out there, and it's this faith that drives the thinking forward. And if you want resources on this, I have tons of resources on people who think this way, who understand science to be a practicing of your faith in something. That it's very hard to find things that are just pure black and white. Which leads me to ask the question, why do dichotomies exist just even in our thinking? Why do we believe they exist? And what I came to understand is that we as human beings love dichotomies. We want dichotomies because we actually hate the idea of personal responsibility. If things are gray, then we can't just check it off and cast it aside. We have to stay responsible. We have to stay engaged. We have to stay caring. For example... We often will demonize somebody. We want to do that because if they are just a bad person, we don't have to be concerned with them anymore. We don't have to be part of the equation. We don't have to do any work because they're just bad, and that's why things go bad with them. But that's not true. The, the real truth is there's no dichotomy there. It's not you're good and they're bad. It's that it's... It's both. It's a two-way street. And everybody's sort of participating uh, in that relationship. But we love dichotomies because it allows us to displace responsibility, to abdicate responsibilities. And um, you have to kind of, I mean, you can read about this, but you also have to examine your own heart pretty deeply to see this. That at the core of our attraction and need for dichotomies is the self that's resisting responsibility. In many ways, my entire uh, quarter century of preaching can be categorized under the mission to tear down dichotomies, false or otherwise, to challenge either or thinking, black or white thinking. And I believe that black and white thinking, this kind of dualistic thinking, is really destructive. And I'm not sure how the church got here, but part of rescuing the church, part of winning back credibility in our culture is going to be to stop dichotomizing faith from science or thinking. 
that if you are a praying person, that also means that you are a diligent doing person. That if you are somebody who believes, you are thinking just as hard. The Bible never says just believe. It says faith is based on evidence of things not seen. It's not the absence of evidence that causes us to uh, invoke faith. It's not because there isn't evidence that we say, ah, I still got to somehow get through this. Let me try just believing. It's not blind faith. It's faith that's based on the evidence of things unseen. Because things unseen doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We know this. But there's evidence that those things exist based on things we can see. And us bridging that gap is what faith is. I'll give you one of my favorite examples. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody in this room has seen this. We cannot scientifically prove that resurrection is possible. But what I understand about the physical reality is that the idea of things dying and then being reborn is a pattern that's found everywhere in all scientific disciplines. That I, you, all of us exist because some star exploded. And the same matter that made up that star somehow made me. I am made of stardust. And when I die, it gets, my matter gets returned and gets reused. That's life, death, and resurrection. And everything in this world follows the same pattern. And so for the scriptures to teach that somehow Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the physical laws of this world, that govern this world, the laws that dictate life, death, and resurrection as a pattern, that he himself would live, die, and then be resurrected, that's not so incredulous. Why wouldn't that be the natural thing to believe based on the scientific evidence of how the world works on a physical level? Dichotomies don't exist. Therefore, false dichotomies don't exist. So uh, some simple charts to help us to see this. As faith increases, your scientific mind should also increase. Your heart and your brain should be growing together. If you want to read books written and statements made by atheistic scientists on how important faith is to their discipline, come see me. If you trust God, your sense of personal responsibility also increases. And the very best way to be responsible is to have within yourself the ability to trust. That's what confidence is, for example. Confidence is a trust in your practice, in your skills, in your competence. If you're able to trust that, then you actually perform better. You're more responsible. These two are false dichotomies. They, they do not exist uh, oppositionally to each other. And then finally, we have thinking and believing. 
the very, very best believers, I believe with all my heart, should be the very, very best thinkers. And the very best thinkers should be the very best believers because when you start critically thinking about something, you get to a point where you have to believe. And if you want to go beyond what you are able to see and touch, it's the engine of faith. Believe that there's more out there, that there is something unknown now that can be known that drives that inquiry. So science itself is driven by faith. So now I have to prove everything I've said through our verses. Let me do that. Uh, verse 1, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. What a, I chose this translation for, the, for that one word, brawler. It doesn't exist in other translations. It's just so funny that that word is in Scripture. Uh, whoever goes astray by them is not wise. So to break this verse down, what the writer is saying is that wisdom... Okay, wisdom, which feels soft and squishy and ethereal, immaterial, right? Wisdom is established in sobriety, clear thinking, accurate information, due diligence, homework, research. You can't do that if you're drunk. It's the clarity of thinking and mind that gives way to wisdom. That's what verse 1 is saying. Wisdom, wisdom is not just some squishy, intuitive, falling down from heaven kind of thing, but it's arrived at through thinking. I do believe there's wisdom from on high. The scriptures say that. There's a kind of earthly, fleshly wisdom. But that wisdom that's fleshly and inferior to the wisdom from on high also lacks in thinking. It's inferior thinking as well. To think the higher thought, to think the better thought, you need a kind of revelation that really kind of gives it a, a turbo boost. Wisdom, the very best kind, is based on hard, concrete reality that comes from knowledge and experience and perspective. And it pushes against oftenly, uh, often uh, things that are presented as false dichotomies, like truth and grace. That's a false dichotomy. Those two are not oppositional to each other. That the very best truth, that is the whole truth, is always gracious. And grace that's truly grace is full of truth. Justice and mercy. That the very best kind of justice, the way it takes into account all the different angles, is merciful. And if it's truly merciful, that means it's going to be good for one and for all, so it's going to be just. What I think is unwise and what I think is untruth are partial truths, obscure truth that leads to either or thinking. This is one of my tests whenever I'm trying to make a decision or think about something. If I ever feel like I have to choose A or B, I'm probably not there yet. I have to keep at it. I got to shine more light on it. I got to dig deeper. I got to reach higher. There is still some higher wisdom to be had. 
So if you ever have to choose, if you feel the dichotomy uh, before you, keep going. Don't stop yet. Don't give up. Don't just accept it. There's still something better. Verse 8, 12, and 8, uh, 18, uh, I've clumped together. I'm going to read it. A king sitting on the throne to judge separates out all evil with what? With his eyes. Verse 12, the ear that hears and the eye that sees, the Lord has made them both. Verse 18, plans are established by counsel. So make war with guidance. What are these verses screaming at us? The king is a king who thinks and analyzes. He's able to discern and separate out, sort out with his eyes, with what he sees. There's an encouragement to use your eyes. It's not just blind faith. It's seeing faith. And verse 12 underscores that. The ear that hears and the eye that sees, who made it? God made it. If you are a thinking, analyzing, scientifically minded person, God made you that way. Don't shut down your faculties. God created your faculties. It's an expression. It's a mirroring of who he is. God sees all things. God doesn't see less. He sees more. True love does not see less. It's not blind. Love sees the whole story. That's why he's able to go to the woman at the well and understand her whole story. He's not able to love her because he doesn't know stuff about her. He loves her precisely because he sees everything about her. Nothing about you is hidden to God. God knows you, your past, your future, your inmost being, he knows. Every hair on your head, he's counted. And that's why he loves you. That's why he's pulling for you. He's for you. And whatever, wherever you think you're trying to get to, when you get there, you'll find he's been there. He's been walking with you all along. He's a seeing God. And so for Christians to feel like, ah, oh, we should really tamp down the way we think and use our brain and use the faculties that God himself made, that's ridiculous. Clearly a false dichotomy. And then verse 18, plans are established by counsel. How, mo- how many of you would like to go to war on just praying? That's so dumb. You got to count your cost. Right? You need guidance. You need input. You need the resources of many, many wise people. You got to strategize. You got to think this out. You got a plan. Do you know that planning is a critical part of trusting God? That somehow you being a planner is not antithetical to you trusting God? Do you know this? That the key to spontaneity is over preparation. If you believe in the Holy Spirit, then you have to make yourself available. Like, I have usually three or four sermons per sermon. You know this. So that the Spirit can use one or all of them if he wants to. Hours and hours of prepping for me. 15 to 20 hours per sermon I spend. 
I really overdo it. But it's not antithetical to me trusting the Spirit. I do not walk down from a successful sermon and think, man, Peter, you did it. I don't ever think that. I always think, thank God, somehow we made it. (laughs) Every time I feel like by the skin of my teeth, I survived another sermon. If you play basketball with me, you'll win. Because I only know how to go to my right. I don't know how to spontaneously be adaptive and go to my left. Spontaneity is built on over-preparation, practice, planning, thinking, muscle memory. Think so that you can trust. Okay, verse 4, 13, and 21 Grouped together again, the sluggard will now plow during the planting season so that at harvest time he looks for the crop but has nothing. Don't you love these old school proverbs? The sluggard (laughs) will now plow. So at harvest time he has nothing. Verse 13, do not love sleep lest you become impoverished. Open your eyes so that you might be satisfied with food. Just a footnote on that. The Proverbs also say the Lord gives sleep to those he loves. Um, Verse 21, an inheritance gained easily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Very hard to survive a windfall. You know, the capacity to handle it isn't there. So it's like putting on really heavy weight on somebody who hasn't worked up to it. They don't have the muscles to bear the weight of a windfall, right? And so the scriptures teach to give more to the one who's been faithful with little. Just, it's just common, what? Sense, sense, sense. We're allowed to be sensible. Do you know this? That Christians are supposed to be sensible? These verses are obviously about delaying gratification. And I think it's a cool concept because delaying gratification is a perfect example of how you have to think and believe in order to arrive at the best outcomes. Like you got to think about it because when the inheritance is right before you, the non-thinking person says, oh, just grab it. Take it all. Be greedy. But the thinking person says, I think I got to do something with this. I got to hire people. I need advisors. I need counsel. I need accountability. I really need to be held to a different sort of value system that I'm accustomed to so that I know how to manage this windfall well so that it doesn't end up owning me. I want to keep owning it. That takes planning and thinking and discipline and really enduring in faith because everything your eyes are telling you is now, 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 and then your brain is telling you later, later, later thinking and believing. Uh, Similarly, these three verses, bread gained by deceit tastes sweet to a person, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Has anybody ever done this, fill their mouth with gravel? I just think that would be awful. Um, Have you ever had a grain of sand in your mouth when you're eating something like at the beach or something? I mean, you got a mouth full of like food, And then you can feel that little grain of sand. That's amazing how uh, sensitive and perceptive our mouth is, right? 
So imagine whole grab a great imagery. Uh, verse 22, do not say, I will pay back evil. Wait for the Lord so that he may vindicate you. 25, it is a snare for a person to rashly cry, holy, and only afterward to consider what he has vowed. Right? Don't make promises you can't keep. Don't bite off more than you can chew. It's really hard to know now what it will be like later. And later is what defines the whole story. Stories are always judged retrospectively. The ending is the most important matter, Scripture says. It's the ending that counts. It's how you finish. That's so important. Requires a lot of thinking, a lot of wisdom, and also a lot of faith. Okay, and then we are going to end around this verse here. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is gray hair. So the way I experience life, and this is, um, I want to share with you a theory that I've been working on. And I've been listening to some great uh, Hebraic thinkers on this, uh, Jewish uh, uh, people who converted to Christianity. <clears throat> and they just have an intuition or a reading of the Old Testament that's been really helpful. And uh, the theory is this, uh, that when men fell, when humankind fell from grace, you know, it's illustrated for us in the Garden, uh, in the garden of Eden, Right? that what happened was we were pushed to certain extremes. And so the way men typically have fallen from grace is by an over-exercising of the effects of testosterone. And the way women fell is by an, a sort of an extreme, uh, uh, ex leaning too extremely into sins of estrogen. And then there's men with sins of testosterone. Right? And part of that, I think, is captured in verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength. That's what they have to offer, their testosterone. Right? But we all know the downfall of young men is what? Also their strength. It's their testosterone. Right? And the splendor of old men is gray hair. And notice... I mean, like, they say that the testosterone level of a man who is 50 is literally half of that of what they were when they were 25. And so it's almost like a trade-off. The lower your testosterone, uh, the more wise you get. There's a, there's a greater balance to you. Right? Um, and I, I certainly experienced this, that as I'm getting older, I feel my spirit getting stronger. I feel my wisdom getting stronger, even as my body gets weaker. I don't have as much glory in my physical strength, but I have more glory in my mental game, in my heart game. My character game is stronger. And so these are, it just, it can be kind of dichotomous. And you sort of look at a young person and you say, they're full of potential, they're full of gifts and talent, but they need to be seasoned. They need to experience life a little bit. So we sort of have to wait for them. And it feels a little bit unfortunate that there's a kind of dichotomy here. That with experience and age comes wisdom. With gray hair is uh, profound wisdom. And so the, it could be kind of illustrated like this. In the, uh, the chart on your left 
uh, says that as the body diminishes, your spirit increases. But here's what I want to share with you. Uh, that, that chart on your right, where the body, you get the glory of the young man's strength, but you get the wisdom of gray hair. You can have both. It doesn't have to be a dichotomy if you belong to the local church. Um, I see myself uh, as a church planter still in many ways. I did that for a long time where I was planting churches. And I was told when I was starting in church planting that church planting is a young man's game. It's kind of aggressive. You know, it's, it's a lot of testosterone, trying to get something off the ground and working hard and, you know, entering into unchartered territory and trailblazing and not just like in an area, but taking cultural risks and theological risks and social risks and trying to get to places where other more older, wiser churches aren't effectively reaching. That's, what, that's the value of church plants. The glory of church plants is the youthfulness of, church, of the church. That's the value. But I will testify that more often than not, I and the young church lacked wisdom. We did not have the glory of old men. We just had the glory of young men. So church plants are kind of fun, high energy, interesting. But it's very fragile. Lots of, most church plants die. The success rate is 10%. Nine out of 10 church attempts fail. That really, I think, illustrates my point alone. That's one thing that I've loved about my time here at this church, is that here I was, a younger man, with lots of younger man energy and younger man ideas, and then it came face to face with wisdom for the first time. And suddenly, there was an invitation to be balanced. And at first, I didn't know what was happening. But turns out, wisdom was entering the room. Grown-ups were entering the room. Gray hairs, literally and metaphorically, were entering the room. And so I think we saw some really amazing things over these last seven years as the strength of young men and as the glory of old men came together. And if you are here and you are an older person, you need younger people. If you are here and you're a younger person, you really, really need older people. You really do. And I think the most natural way to exist that way is the local church. Wisdom and love found in this church really helped manage and give guidance to my strength. And this church shared wisdom with me for these seven plus years. And through life together connected to this body politic, I had both strength and wisdom. And the church, by identifying with me as the pastor, had both strength and wisdom. We both together added value to the other. We had keel and we had sail. Even in this last year of challenges, 
both personally and professionally, I really see how the wisdom in this church, the strength of this church, is helping to send me out. It helped me to grow, and it helped the church ready itself for continual turnaround along this revitalization journey. And my last encouragement to you is the body politic of Evergreen Covenant Church. I hope that you will commit to a local church, but more specifically, this local church. I will end by the reading of these verses here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Young men and old men coming together to build itself up in love. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and following. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body for the body does not consist of one member but of many always be the many that comes together as one be the local church join a small group come to large groups invest commit it is what you need for balance and strength in your life. Amen.